Our scripture reading today is from James 3, 13 through 4, 6. This is found on page 1012 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello, everyone. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Um, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm Dakota Dietz. I'm one of the pastoral residents here at Christ Community, and I'm here at Brookside. Um, my wife, Megan, and I, we are from California. We grew up in California. That's where we met and got married. And then we moved out to the Midwest. And so we were in Chicago for four years or so while I went to seminary. And now we live here in Kansas City. We live in Waldo, just kind of south of here, a few blocks. And it's good to be here. We, we have two sons, Declan and Theo. Declan is uh, three years old, just turned three. And then Theo is about 10 months old. And they're a lot of fun. Uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, 
or knowing or hearing anything about Jesus. Uh, and I came to faith when I was 18. And that was through one of my best friend's dad. He was and is a pastor. So growing up, I definitely didn't think that I would be a pastor. But uh, here I am. And I am really excited to be here with you. We're going to be going through this morning uh, through James again in our series. And we're going we're gonna to read and talk about real faith and desires about how to have a good life and what keeps us from that. So let's pray and then we'll jump in. Lord, God, thank you for your grace. God, thank you for this day. God, thank you for bringing us all here this morning to be together, to worship you to hear from you. So God, I just pray that you would open up our hearts to learn from you, to hear from you. Spirit, work in us whatever it is that you want to do through this time. And be with us, and we know that you are. We love you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So my wife's family loves family movie nights. This is one of the things that they had as a family rhythm growing up. Uh, they would all get together on a Friday night and they would pick a movie to watch. And still to this day, um, when everyone gets back together and the spouses are in town and, uh, and significant others or whoever's there, uh, that's one of our go-to ways to connect. And so Megan's brother actually has, uh, he got a projector so it's that much of a part of our lives. He had a projector so we can have a whole wall to watch these movies together. And then it's a great time for, for, fam- for friends who are in town who we don't get to see very often to, to come over and kind of join in with us. So now, think about it. We have the parents and we have the four kids and the spouses and the significant others and, and then we have however many friends are there. And you see a problem here? Somehow, with all of these people, all of these different tastes in movies or preferences and just kind of feelings they're bringing in the day of, of what sounds fun or, or doesn't sound fun to watch. Somehow, we all have to decide what's one movie that we can all watch together. <laughs> Choosing the one right movie from what everyone wants. It's pretty tough. For my part, I have to admit that I'm kind of a rom-com kind of guy. Actually, I just, I just love them. Uh, and in one of the most famous rom-coms, The Notebook, there's a scene where Noah is trying to convince this woman that he loves that she's marrying the wrong guy. And so he's trying to get below the surface excuses down to her deeper desires. And so when she says something about whatever she does, someone gets hurt, Noah responds, Stop thinking about what I want. Stop thinking about what your parents want. Stop thinking about what he wants. Just tell me one thing. Can you do that? Just tell me. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Just tell me. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? And she just screams, I don't know! And she runs and and she drives off in the car. What 
do you want? It's actually a question that Jesus liked to ask too. What is it that you feel deep in your heart that if you just had this one thing, you'd have a good life? What's your deepest desire? Today we're going to learn that that real faith wants what God wants. Real faith wants what God wants. So what does God want? God wants to give you a good life. He does. But, But what is a good life? Well, James here is writing to these Jewish Christians who fled Jerusalem, and he's writing to encourage them and to challenge them. And so when he talks about this good life, he says that it comes out of this wisdom from above. And earlier in the book, in chapter 1, verse 17, he'd said that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from God. And so wisdom comes from God. God gives it, and then it gives a good life. Wisdom is the, the ultimate gift that keeps on giving. When we read in, in, in chapter 3, verse 13, when we read good conduct, what we should really read is a good way of life. It's not really about getting good grades or a gold star or doing good deeds. It's about the fundamental character of your life. James says in verse 18 that this wise life produces a harvest of righteousness, which only grows from the seed of peacemaking. James is using an agrarian metaphor to teach this spiritual truth, just like Jesus loved to do. So peace must be sown into a community in order for righteousness to be produced. Now, righteousness is the Bible's word for for right moral living that upholds God's ways as you live with other people. So as you live with your neighbors, as you live with your, your friends, your siblings, your parents, teachers, classmates, bosses, and coworkers, whoever it is. And now it's important to differentiate that there's, this, there's a status of righteousness that is given to us on the basis of, of our union with Christ by faith in him. And then there is lived righteousness. And this comes progressively as we submit more and more of our lives over to Christ's lordship. It's doing justice in every area of life. As Micah 6.8 says, it's, it's doing right by people. That means the wisdom can't be lived alone. It can only be lived together in a community of people who are practicing peace. That's why when James says in um, just the next section, when he talks about the fruits of wisdom's harvest, I think it's actually just earlier, he describes this list, first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. New Testament scholar Ben Witherington, he argues that wisdom produces pure fruit first as a sort of compass that kind of resets our heart. It's our heart that is reset towards what is good and beautiful. 
and then peaceable comes second. And it's a, the necessary condition for any other fruit. So it's pure and then peaceable, and then everything else comes in time. God wants to create in you a pure heart that wants to make peace with others. Do you want this? Can you think of a moment or a season of your life where where making peace was the driving desire of your life? Probably more lasting in your memory are those moments or those seasons where peacemaking was the furthest thing from what you wanted. When you were were jealous or envious of someone else's life. Or you were angry about something said about your own life. So if God wants this good life for us, one characterized by purity of heart and peacemaking, why are we so often fighting, demeaning, and lying, abusing, oppressing? What keeps us from living this good life? Satan wants to sell you a counterfeit life. Evil presents a counterfeit wisdom. It's a lie. It doesn't lead to life. Jesus talks about this evil one, Satan, quite a bit actually, but one of the main passages is in John 8, where Jesus calls the devil the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. Shatan is the Hebrew word for deceiver. At the core, the devil is a liar. It's his nature. So the main battle with evil is not fought in the world of things, but in the world of ideas, thoughts, worldviews. Lies start in the heart. And so this wisdom from below, let's call it, James says is it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So the last word demonic, it keys us into the fact that, that wisdom is primarily deceptive in nature. It's not blatantly or obviously evil, and that's on purpose. That's why James begins the whole thing with this rhetorical question, singling out people in the congregations who think that they're wise. They believe they're living a good life, but in truth, they're following a path that leads to destruction. Counterfeit wisdom parades as truth, but it's false. It's a deception. It's, it's like a false wall. On a theater, you have this artist construct and, and paint this wall for the set, and it might look very realistic, but it's not. Don't expect it to hold up a roof. False wisdom creates a false life. But don't fall for it. It's a lie. Pastor John Mark Comer, in his new book, Live No Lies, he reminds us that the most damaging, the most difficult to detect lies are not actually the ones out there that we maybe see in others or in the world or um, majority culture or whatever it is. The most difficult damaging ones are the ones in our own minds. Lies like good things 
don't happen to me. So why even try to succeed? Or if anyone fully knew me, they just reject me. Or I have earned everything I have. These kinds of lies, when they take hold without being confronted, they literally suck the life out of us. It's poison. And it gets down into our hearts and infects our desires and so our actions. So rather than just believing lies, we live them. Comer gives the example of someone who believes that they're unlovable. Now, whether this belief comes from a broken family growing up or, or a really bad breakup or failures in friendship, this belief begins to shape behavior. He writes this, because you don't believe you are worthy of love, you let people treat you in ways that are disrespectful and demeaning. Or you act in ways that are disrespectful or demeaning. If you live this lie long enough, tragically what was false starts to become true. You would eventually become the kind of person that is not worthy of love and respect and you alienate yourself from the very relationships that you crave. This is how Satan hijacks your desires. Suddenly, your, your desires for a good life become desires for a self-centered life. James calls these desires bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. They really can be kind of brought together in the one word, envy. Envy is when we can't look at a good thing, especially if someone else has it, without wanting to own it, to have it for ourselves. So Kurt Thompson, the Christian psychiatrist who was here a couple weeks ago, he talks about the fine line between desiring and devouring. Envy is desire that devours. It takes life from someone else and it tries to fill a void in my own life. And this can play out in all kinds of ways, in economics, in politics, in relationships, and in our families. And I know this all too well. I give in, I give in to these selfish desires every time I scold my three-year-old son too harshly, because deep down, I want to be a good dad. But I'm afraid that I'm not. And so him acting out, it threatens that fear, threatens to confirm that it's true. So as you think about our own failures, a helpful way to practice being curious is to look at them from the outside. So when we do that, it's easier to notice that, that with every want that we have, that there's always the want behind the want. There's the deeper desire. So with my situation, what, what I seemed to want most strongly was for my kid to behave, right? But then what did I want that to do for me? I wanted it to make me feel like a good dad. So there's two diagnostic questions you can ask yourself. What do you think that you want 
That's kind of at the surface level. And what do you want that to do for you? That digs a little bit deeper. When these wayward desires come out of our hearts and into the light of day, we live a lie. In chapter 3, verse 14, James calls it boasting and being false to the truth. It's building up a kingdom of self rather than living in the kingdom of God. So, none of these, none of this talk about self-centered desire or living lies, none of it will matter unless we see how it impacts real life for us. So let me submit to you an example that has very real day-to-day consequences for us in this specific local church at Brookside. Self-sufficiency. On our quest for the good life, we end up building these fences around our lives, and we carefully manicure our appearances. And all the while, we are constantly comparing ourselves to what others have. And we always fall short. Someone is always more successful, or, or has more money, or a bigger home, or higher achieving kids, or what it, whatever it is. At its root, this is pride. We want something to boast about. How we measure that is often by the appearance of what others have. Turns out, the gated, manicured suburban lifestyle is the perfect living metaphor for a heart bent inwards, carried along by selfish desires. David Getz, he's a former editor for a popular pastoral leadership periodical. He wrote about this in his book, Death by Suburb. He highlights eight ways, yes, eight, eight ways that the suburbs can kill your soul. He calls them the environmental toxins of the suburban landscape. And then he offers eight spiritual practices that can combat these toxins. One of his chapters focuses specifically on wanting what others have or coveting This is one of the ways that Satan wants to sell you this counterfeit life. You see what others have and you want it. It's right here in James 4, verse 2. It says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What's happening in the churches that James is writing to is just like what is happening in our churches embedded in American self-sufficiency today. So let's be curious about that. What's what's the lie? Watch out for number one. Others exist to make my life better. As soon as they appear to threaten that, cut them out. A good life, in other words, is a life without discomfort, which doesn't exist. And so we spend all our time and we never stop fighting for it. 
there are terrible consequences for living such a self-focused lie. Educational inequities, redlining, who we align with politically, who we malign politically, who we make friends with, and who we ostracize, has a toxic effect on our prayer life, too. So we go to God and we ask for stuff in order to what? To lay it down for God's kingdom in worship? No. No, James says in 4 verse 3, to spend it on your passions, on our pleasures. Getz says the remedy for this toxin of self-interest is repentance. It's a turning away from our selfish desires and turning towards God and neighbor. But first, we have to be brave enough to be honest about our heart's selfish desires. So ultimately, it comes down to a heart check. Do we want our own way or God's way? Do we love ourselves more than we love God and neighbor? Jesus told a story about the Samaritan who helped a man who was beat up on the side of the road while the religious folk passed by. Who's been beat up and left on the side of our roads? From the glamour of downtown to the comfort of Kansas City's suburban metropolis, who are the people that we pass by? Are we giving ourselves for God's kingdom? One that's made up of all peoples. Or are we building a kingdom of self? Whose kingdom does your heart belong to? When you build a castle around your heart, what you're actually building is a casket. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in one of my favorite quotes. It says this, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in that casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love at all is to be vulnerable. To be vulnerable is to open yourself up to others, to open yourself up to God. It's the only way that we can give and receive genuine love. Rather than living for the comfort of our kingdom of self, God calls us home to himself. 
to live in his kingdom by his ways for his glory. And as followers of a crucified Savior, we embrace the discomfort of loving others. Only then in this life of vulnerable love will we find true and lasting comfort. If you're like me, though, you're afraid of letting God in, if you're honest, because you're afraid that he'll hurt you. Because people hurt people. And many people have done that in probably all of our stories. So this next one's often the first hurdle that anyone faces before becoming closer with Jesus. Let your heart receive God's desire for you. If you were to ask God, what do you want? How do you think he'd respond? God yearns for you. He longs for you. He desires you. Your deepest, truest self in your deepest shame and your failures and in your most heavenly longings for goodness. He wants it all. Read chapter 4, verse 5 with me. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has put, he has made to dwell in us? This is the story of the Bible in a sentence. From the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 to the gates of heaven in Revelation 21, God deeply yearns to be with his image bearers, to be with us. Even when we leave him, when we forsake him for, for golden calves or, or wealth or sex, or popularity or success, God wants you. He has always wanted you and he will always want you. He is zealously committed to your good forever. And this is why God opposes boastful and lying lives. He can't do anything else except oppose them because they're the very things that will lead to your destruction and separation from the goodness that only he can give. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction. But God, Jesus came to earth and was destroyed in your place, taking on himself all of God's opposition to everything within us that is divisive and warmongering and selfish and cruel and unjust. He took it on himself on the cross. And then when we're open to him, when we submit to him and to his ways, he is glad to give us his goodness, his grace, the gifts of a new life that's led by his wisdom. This is actually exactly what Proverbs 3, 34, which James quotes in 4 verse 6, says. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the meekness of wisdom from 3 verse 13. This is what produces a good 
life. God gives the life of wisdom to those who are willing to give up their own ways and follow his ways. So how do we do this? How do we avoid what James calls earlier the disorder in every vile practice that comes from selfish desires? How do we keep Satan from trafficking our desires and instead to want what God wants? Only this. Humble your desires. Read with me the last few verses of the section we're working on in James chapter 4. James gives his people a series of quick, practical instructions for how to be humbled. So 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So we can humble our desires with four practices that we're going to look at. The first practice, reject lies from below. That's how we resist the devil. We need to uncover the lies that we're living. And as you do this, you'll probably need help from a trusted mentor or counselor or a friend. Talk with them about the areas of your life that don't seem to live up to the goodness that that you want or that God wants for you. Second practice, receive grace from above. Draw near to God, James says. We need to replace the lies with the truth of God's word. And practically, we can do this in different ways. We can spend time reading and praying through passages of scripture, or we can memorize specific verses that speak directly to the lies that we're living. Or it could look like sitting down and talking with a friend and just voicing the lies out loud. Sometimes we we need to hear ourselves say them to even realize that they're there. And then listen to your friend speak the truth over you. Practice number three, fast intentionally. James says, cleanse your hands. This is a way to wean our wants and then to lean on God's abundant grace. We hardly ever practice giving up what we want, right? Once we know we want something, there's very little that will make us let go of that. So think about a a three-year-old told to let go of their beloved toy. I know this very well. Uh, So you tell them, let go, share it with your brother. And what do they do? They immediately clamp down, no, it's mine, I need it. But if you present them with something that they want even more, something better, they'll drop that toy like it doesn't even exist anymore. Just poof, disappear. We have to train ourselves to want God more than we want our own way. Fasting 
intentionally going without something that we normally want and don't normally go without is a good way to start. So food is the most obvious kind of daily thing, but there's other things that work too, like fasting from social media or fasting from TV or, uh, or coffee, which that's a, ouch. Uh, fourth practice is lament courageously. Lament courageously. James calls it purify your hearts. This is the first step in the work of repentance, but we often miss it. Lament is the godly grief that leads to repentance. When Jesus is our first love and our, and our king, we are free to lament when we see ourselves or others fail. When you see the destructive ways of the kingdom of self, the only right and pure response is to lament, to mourn. The grief has to come first, though. It has to be felt in the depths of your heart. So only then will your heart be open and ready to receive God's inflowing grace for new desires and a new way of life. But you can't get there except through lament. So as we close here, I'm going to lead us through a time of reflection. And as we reflect on this, ask the Spirit to bring your reflections to God as an expression of lament, of sorrow and grief. So think about the adjectives in this passage that describe the good life. Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere. Do any of these stand out as being particularly hard for you right now? How does that hinder how you show up in vulnerable love with others? Then think about the adjectives that come from the kingdom of self, from the wisdom below. Bitter, jealous, selfish, boasting, being false, fighting, seeking your own pleasure. Do any of these stand out as being particularly convicting or true of you these days? Where are you building a kingdom of self? How is it destroying the goodness Jesus wants to work in your life? Or destroying the goodness that God wants to work through your life? Who might be the casualties of war in your fight for what you think you want? What have you wanted instead of God and God's ways? James 4, verse 6 says, but he gives more 
grace. Remember, God promises to lift you up when you are humble before him. Let your lament this morning and this week bring you into confession of sin. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Friends, turn towards God and receive the good news of God's desire to forgive you and to restore you, restore you to life in his good kingdom. So let me pray. Lord God, we come before you thankful, thankful for your grace, for your goodness, for your love. God, thank you that that in Christ you have shown us and daily show us how deeply you want us to the point of death on the cross. Holy Spirit, train our hearts to want you in your ways as we labor to live in your grace and mercy, which are new every morning. Amen.